Welcome to the JMS Podcast with Jorge M. Sanchez. Thank you for tuning in, ladies and gentlemen, and everybody else in between. I much appreciate you tuning in. We have a great episode. It is jam-packed. We are premiering a new segment, Going Viral with Chase. So I'm going to make this intro ramble uh, as fast as I can. Uh, please visit the JMSpodcast.com website. You can see all the exclusive content right there. You can see pictures of the guests that have been here before. On top of that, please tune in to the JMS Podcast and subscribe on the regular on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and SoundCloud. Please follow the JMS Podcast on Facebook, on Twitter, and in Instagram. I'm right there. I know you guys want me in your life. Well, there's an opportunity. You just got to follow JMS Podcast and social media. All right, today's episode, we have the poet Bill Guzzini here from San Jose. I learned a lot about this guy, uh, a lot more than I thought I would. Turns out he's a very talented guy in many other areas. So that's really awesome. Stay tuned for that conversation. But before we get there, we finally made it. We have another great segment that we'd like to uh, put out here. It is Going Viral with Chase. Uh, Chase is no stranger to the podcast. He's been here uh, twice as a regular guest. He's a good friend of mine and a comedian. And now uh, he has his own segment. It is Going Viral. It is where we talk about all things pop culture that happens in social media. And uh, and pretty much once we get into it, you, you'll see what, what we're talking about. As our first episode, we're going to be talking about fidget spinners. Oh yeah. Yes, we're going to talk about fidget spinners. You, you will be surprised where it's going to go. At least you'll learn something. Alright? So alright, let's get to that. Here is Going Viral with Chase Doherty. Welcome to the first episode of Going Viral with Chase Doherty. Uh, here in the studio, we have one, the one and only Chase. Yes. Hi, Jorge. How's it going, man? Hey. Uh, so before we go on, let's uh, let the listeners know that what kind of show is this and what can they expect? Going Viral. So Going Viral with, uh, with me, uh, Chase Doherty. Uh, is basically um, it's going to be a short segment uh, just talking about uh, the things that have gone viral uh, over during the month of time. I think this is going to be like a monthly segment if I'm not mistaken. So I'll be on here once a month or so just talking about the, some of the things that uh, happened. Maybe not some of the things but one thing in particular that kind of stood out that's spread across the internet that got a lot of views that has been reposted or retweeted had a lot of discussions. Uh, just basically trends that are on the rise. So Nice, dude. Yeah. It lets you know that we're trying to stay along the pulse of the 21st century social media culture. Yes, absolutely. So, And welcome to the team, man. Yeah. No. I mean, I mean, you were behind the scenes a bit, but I think mm-hmm. now you're part of the uh, creative team now. Oh. Moving up, you started off as an assistant yes. to, to the film critic. Yes. And before I know it, you have your own segment now. Yeah. No, this is, uh, this is great. This is exciting. Uh, glad that I could definitely be a part of it and uh, be here. So I'm looking forward to it. See what we can do. Cool. All right, man. What are we talking about today? We're talking about today uh, fidget spinners. Oh shit, fidget spinners. Oh man. 
you know, fidget spinners, I mean, before I get into how, how I feel about it, um, I mean, for the people that don't know what fidget spinners are, basically, I'll kind of give you a breakdown of, like, what it is, origin, you know, why it's, like, become, like, this thing, and then I'll, I'll, I'll give my take on it. So that's going to be, like, the segment that's how it's going to work and everything like that. So fidget spinners, if you don't know what they are, um, basically, it's a spinning toy that has like two to three prongs and those prongs are basically those things that um are you know are basically uh ends i guess you could say right so you know what i mean i might not paint the best visual so just like google fidget spinner (laughs) and then you'll you'll know you'll know what i'm talking about when i say when i say the word prongs and these prongs are usually weighted uh kind of depending on the feel for the person and then in the center there's a bearing that uh-huh. basically allows it to spin. It's uh-huh. kind of acts as its like center of gravity, essentially. Right. So, uh, basically, um, and also the cool thing about this too that I didn't know this either is that the bearings could be adjusted. Um, they could be adjusted for the person's uh, liking and taste. So you um, could customize it. Yeah, you can. Okay. I, I, yeah, I didn't know that either. I thought they they just came as like kind of a set thing. So. But yeah, you could actually kind of uh, customize it and set it to your liking. And um, let's see. I mean, as far as, you know, and and from what I looked at, it, it looks like, it, I mean, you could even determine, like, how it sounds, too. I don't even know it could go that far. Jesus Christ. All right. Yeah. Wow. You could really personalize these things. You could, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So did, did these came into the market as toys, essentially? Uh, You know, as far as, like... What it is essentially is that it essentially kind of came into a market as a toy. I mean that's I mean that's really how how it's looked at pretty much upon society as it is now is that it's a toy. But uh, others uh, believe that it had uh, a lot of it had to do with uh, kind of relieving stress, anxiety. Um, oh, know. it's a stress reliever, like yeah. a stress ball. Yeah, like a. But instead, it's something know. that you fidget with. Yeah, something that you fidget with. So you know, how people always have are always kind of like you know tense and like you know they have a tendency to like tap their fingers you know or something like that or you know can't really stay in one plate can't stay still like people with add yeah add adhd all all that good stuff um all right you know so a lot of the times you know people are you know you know once it became marketable things like that that's kind of where the claim started began and the origin actually is pretty interesting with with the fidget spinners they're actually uh kind of goes back to the early 90s Actually, so really, like 1993. Uh huh. Yeah. So there was this girl named Catherine uh, 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 Hettinger, I guess. Uh, yeah, Catherine Hettinger, um, who was a chemical engineer by training, um, who initially created some news stories, have been the inventor of the fidget spinner. Back in the 90s. Back in the early 90s. Yeah. So she had a patent application for a spinning toy, which mm-hmm. was similar to the way that the fidget spinner works now. Um, unfortunately, when she made the patent, uh, the patent expired in the early to uh, mid two thousands. So there wasn't it wasn't able to be massly produced or anything like that. She couldn't find anybody to massly produce the product that she essentially had the patent for. Mm-hmm. So essentially, in two thousand five, when it ended, you know there was nothing else. There was nothing else like it. But the thought of it, the actual fidget spinner itself, has been in existence since then, which I had no idea until I did further research about it. So, cool. So, yeah. so why is it popping up now? Well, actually, you know, it's it's interesting that you bring it up because now in um, and yeah, in this time, it's actually oh, let me see. 
from from what I did as far as the research goes, it looks like in 2016, December 2016, late, um, it looks like these started popping up now. And the reason why they started popping up is because now it kind of came back into recreation, and uh, that's where this gentleman comes in uh, comes into the picture. His name is uh, Scott McCoskery. Yeah, Scott McCoskery. Um, he actually invented the actual fidget spinner that we all know and witness today. So, and it was actually kind of what we were touching about earlier to help kind of release stress and anxiety because uh, he worked in IT mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, he needed something to kind of fidget with and play around with to kind of help get through his meetings and throughout the day. So, okay, essentially, and it was actually not called the fidget spinner. It was actually called the torque bar. The torque bar. The torque bar. Oh, the torque bar. Torque bar. Yeah. Like like torque, torque, torque. We're not, talking about no, no, not torque. Like torque, torque, like like, uh, like yeah, torque. Uh, T O R Q and then B A R. Right, right. Okay. So if you if you actually Google that as well too, you'll be able to find it. Um, they're they're on sale as well too, and they look a little bit different than the actual fidget spinners themselves when right. they were first created. But um, yeah, there's this gentleman named uh, Scott McCoskery who actually you know, invented the metal spinning device actually in 2014, uh, just for himself, actually. And then he decided in 2016 to find a way to mass produce them. So hmm. that's that's the that's kind of the origin of it. And yeah, they, they peaked in December 2016 to all the way June of this year. Hmm. So the trend is starting to go down a little bit, and we're talking about this in July, I know, but I mean, all the hype... I mean, you see them around now all the time. And when and when the hype happened, and you know why why it's important is because, you know, in order to sell these things, you know, essentially, you know, marketers, you know, needed to create, you know, a why reason to purchase them. And that's where when we were talking about earlier the claims for, uh, you know, relieving symptoms of ADD, ADHD. Um, even autism, there was a claim where you know it helped kids with autism mm-hmm. uh, out as well too, um, and even the yeah, anxiety. But as far as the research that I've done myself, there is actually no evidence that states those specific claims. So, so it, it was not geared towards those claims. It was actually meant to be a general toy. Uh, toy. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Because actually- I, I remember like a couple postings of like, oh, I don't understand why people have fidget spinners. They're meant for autistic children. But I guess they, they weren't really. They, they were actually... Because I'm confused because the people I see with fidget spinners are not exactly children. I yeah. see them, uh, you know... They're grown adults like Grown me. adults yeah. playing around with the yeah. toy mm-hmm. for the sake of playing around with it. Yeah. Yeah. So... I mean, has it proven to be a, a proper stress reliever? I mean... From from the from my own research that I was able to do, there is no specific study that says that playing with a fidget spinner is proven to cause any sort of stress relief. Mm. It's sort of it's sort of exactly you know what it was. It's a it's a marketing gimmick. It's a marketing ploy to want to help you buy it, right? I mean, it's it's a reason it's a reason to purchase it and. I mean, and that's kind of where, that's kind of where this, you know, as a psychology major with, you know, the research that I've had to do and, um, you know, before with all my classes that I've had to take and papers that I've had to write, I mean, I find this, you know, very, very interesting. I mean, it helped out for this particular person, Scott, who actually invented it, but that's that particular person. It's not for everybody. And I mean, whether or not it has psychological effects, I mean, it, it might... It might be a temporary thing, 
mm-hmm. you know, it might be like a temporary stress reliever, but there's no actual measurable data or experiments that have been done or groups of people that have been um, asked to answer questions and then use a fidget spinner to measure these kinds of things. So it's it's hard to say. I mean, it's so new, right? Um, that, you know, may, and maybe that's the reason why it's so new that maybe nothing has been done. Mm. But, you know, who knows? I mean, maybe, maybe time will go by and then, you know, we'll see if we get something measurable in the future. It'll be interesting to see. Now, do you think this is something worth going viral about? Um, like, what's your take on this? Fidget spinners. I mean, uh, is it worth the hype? Essentially, that's what I'm asking. (laughs) Yeah, no, exactly. So when I first saw the, I mean, when I first saw it, um, I just thought to myself, uh, vape pens. Yeah, that's yeah. That was that. Like, if we were to play like a word association game, like if someone says fidget spinner, I think vape pen. I think. Therefore, you think of douchebags. I mean, not douchebags, but I mean, I I'm think, sorry, do you vape? I, I, I went straight no, no, to it. <laughs> no, 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 no. But I, what I think of it is, um, I just think of it's gonna be. It's marketed to the ma- to the mass public for something that has probably a good intentional use, like the fidget spinner, to help probably relieve some sort of temporary stress. Right, and then the vape pen, which was used to essentially help somebody quit smoking, mm-hmm. that was the origin of the vape pen. It's it just has the you just have the ability as the user to smoke liquid nicotine, basically. That's what I that's my immediate feeling when I first saw this. Is it's just a useless toy that's going to be in my junk drawer in two to three months because I'm going to get bored of it. Mm. And it's just it's going to be something that will take up space. I mean, that's my take on it. That's my opinion. Um, I mean, how inexpensive are these things? You know, online. I mean, I see prices like five ninety nine, and then I see like ones that are really fancily made, like ones that are made out of like gold. I, I see them for like two hundred, three hundred bucks. Holy shit! Yeah, I mean, there's a. It's crazy that there's a market for this stuff. Uh-huh. Like and it's just it's just a fidget spinner, and then also there are like viral videos out on YouTube where it there's uh there are people that just make that just make it from everyday products at home, like there was somebody mm. that took uh took a couple washers and some nuts and some bolts and a bike chain and created a fidget spinner basically. All right, ultimately, what does this mean in the long run? Like, what does this say about our society, about our youth, or about whatever? Mm. Who, who, uh, who made this fidget spinner phenomenon? I mean, I get why I would never buy one, but I get why they're popular. Um, I think it's just, I think it's just like one thing happened in late 2016 where something wore off, and then the fidget spinner took off, and then it was just marketed correctly. And it just appealed to the masses because no one else was thinking of anything. So. I, I felt like it was mostly marketed through Facebook because I, I didn't really oh, yeah. see any marketing for it on IG or on Twitter. Yeah, I, 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 the first time I saw the fidget spinner was one of those. You know, think, you know, yeah. you know those. I don't think it was BuzzFeed, but you know mm-hmm. those super, you know, cheesy ass uh, viral videos they put on of like, oh, check this thing out. It's meant for yeah. this, and uh, that's the latest thing. And yeah, and I saw. I was like, that's just. I don't know. I, I didn't really dig it. But then before yeah. I knew it, uh, some YouTube celebrities would be using him mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my, you know, 
I think it's just a, a cool thing to have, but it's not... I don't think people that purchase them use it for the intended use. I think it's just like, oh, cool, look at the fidget spinner that I have. It does this. Just like everything. I mean, you could even see them at 7-Eleven now. Like, you could get mm-hmm. one for... You could get one for about five bucks at 7-Eleven. Like, it's, right. it's crazy. I, I mean... Yeah, I mean, as far as, like, what it says about our society, I mean... I don't know if we're gullible or if it makes it make us makes us more gullible or uh, what what it really says. But I think we're I think if something looks cool, um, even if there's an intended use for it or not, then we'll go ahead and purchase it. And then other and then other companies will take advantage of that trend. Mm-hmm. And then eventually it'll just die off. It's just it peaks and valleys, I guess. It's just kind of what it says. I think this is another one of those peaks and valleys kinds of things. So cool, you know. Yeah. All right, let's wrap this up. Cool. Last thoughts. Last thoughts. Well, um, do the fidget spinners have your seal of, of approval? Oh, man, I, I would never purchase one. Um, but I guess if you need something to do fine if you and it look if you feel like uh, are <laughs> you having trouble with this no i'm not having trouble i mean uh, it's just it's like one of those things where it's just like i, I get why it exists but like it, it doesn't it hasn't proven the reason why it exists does that make sense not at all like you know why it exists but it hasn't proven why it exists like psychologically, like psychologically, people look at a fidget spinner as oh, like oh, it'll help me like relieve stress and you know anxiety and things like that. But it actually doesn't do that. I feel it's more like hey, this person looks cool with it. Maybe I look cool with it. That too, I guess. But I mean, that's again, it kind of goes back to the first thing that I was saying is that like when I see fidget spinner, I think vape pen immediately. I think it's something is like has an intended use for it. And then when I did the research, I was like, yeah, that, that makes sense. That's really cool why that person invented that. Uh, but I get that it's it's a spinning toy. If it's going to be simply, you know, labeled as a spinning toy, um, you're going to be bored in two or three weeks. I will tell you. My take on it is that if you do buy it, don't spend a lot of money because uh, you're going to be bored in two or three weeks and you're going to find it in your junk drawer. Mm-hmm. And when you clean that out in two years... You're gonna look at that fidget spinner. I was like, oh yeah, that was a stupid purchase. Um, you know, it's kind of like it's kind of like a bad tattoo that you regret because it's faded and um, you got fatter over the years, mm-hmm. and it's just it doesn't no longer look like a tattoo of once it was because it all expanded and contracted. It's just it's a bad memory that you have. That'll be my take on it. But again, uh, everybody has a different perspective. Everyone thinks differently. So. Um, Hey, if you think it really is a stress for you, by all means, go ahead and do it. Um, got nothing but love for everybody. Just my take on it. So it's going viral with Chase. All right, thanks, Chase, for stopping by. Awesome. have it the first episode of going viral with chase what do you think did you learn something new would like to add on to this conversation please email me at jmspodcast at gmail.com with your thoughts 
I hope you guys really enjoyed that, and I'm looking forward for the next episode already. All right, next up, we got Bill Kozani. Uh, yes, I did rush over that name. I am trying not to mess it up. Um, he is a real awesome guy, uh, and I've met him. He came to the JMS podcast first poetry event, actually. That's where I first time I met him, and it turns out that uh, he, me and him took some similar steps in our in our college years. Um, obviously, you're about to find out that he did uh, some a, a lot of amazing things when he's uh, in his college days. But it just it's pretty cool to meet someone else who kind of took a, a similar route you did, which is you know go through the community college, get involved with the arts there, and then transfer out to to the to the university here in San Jose, get involved with the arts there, and end up uh, being part of the community through the open mic scene. That is very similar to what I've gone through, which is go through De Anza, go through uh, SJSU, and from there getting involved through my open mic at Cafe Frascati in downtown San Jose. So uh, it's great to get a lot of insight from this gentleman, and uh, I hope you really enjoy it. So let's get to that. Here is Bill Kozeny. I think, I think Bill, we're good to go. Good to go. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank doing you. well. Yeah, yeah. We're just talking outside how things have changed around here. The the neighborhood, yeah, it's completely transformed. The uh, I first started working in this neighborhood like 1987 off of Zanker Road. What were you doing around here? I've uh, been making computer chips. I was basically, you know, this the valley just kind of fell into the into the work. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, friend at high school, his mother was a janitor at a place, and we started working in inspection on the weekends. Uh huh. Like in, inspecting the microchips. Yeah, yeah, in the very early, you know. And that was just before the kind of Japanese takeovers. That was 1984. And so the industry was at the point where it needed, it's kind of to get its butt kicked a little bit. And so uh, the big first tech dip was like 1985. Interesting. You never hear about that. Like, I think the the most common one we hear is about the 90s, the 90s bubble, the dot-com. There's all the bubbles but, have been relentless. But I forget yeah. that here in Silicon Valley, like back in the '80s and '70s, mm-hmm. this is where a lot of the the tech for like in the weapons industry, like Lockheed Martin, started. And right, if, well, the, the thing is, that's what's strange about this area that sometimes people don't recognize is this is such an industrial revolution, historical place, and it doesn't matter whether it's a computer chip, it doesn't matter what components started taking over your radio or your television. Everything was being condensed and this was the place. It was all of it was happening here. Yeah. And and you're one of the OGs in the tech industry over here, huh? I I, I feel weird saying that because, you know, I always think of that as being like engineer designer, but sure enough, yeah, I'm in eighty four. I was one of the you know, just running the inspection equipment on the weekends to, you know, find the defects that say this is a bad chip and yeah, that was the that was the start. How, how is your perspective when you see and you live the evolution of tech here? Like it goes from industrial to like more more like internet to more software to more social media now. Um, I think that when I just think of the technology growth is more what I've been paying attention to. I guess really in that way, um, you know, the fact that it's gone internet and so much around here is now let's say software related. But it's still behind it. I just know th- these are the backbones of it. And mm-hmm. if we don't have a faster chip, we don't have faster memory, if it doesn't go to you know faster processing, each of these things doesn't happen. 
And so even though the more and more of the technology or the shipbuilding is offshore, there's still massive plants of high-end stuff being built in the U.S. So they just spread it out more now. So you have your New York, you have your Austin, you have your different places in the country that it's happening, but um, it doesn't progress without that. Must be a weird thing to like, in the, in the beginning, like you have a refrigerator-sized server that could hold the most like two megabytes, uh -huh, right? Have, yes. And now you get something as small as like as a quarter can hold about like 65 gigabytes or something like that. Oh yeah, that, that was one of the things I always, you know, it was just fascinating to watch, you know, when my dad got his first computer for us to work on papers in college, it was, you know, 1985. And yeah, it's RAM was Was it the Mac? A Meg. No, that was it was one of those weird little clones that was popping up at the time because no one had officially had like here is the system to own. Like a like a personal So IBM hadn't taken yeah. over, the Mac hadn't taken over. It was still people, you know, here's the Atari one, here's the um what was that other number? Was it the on? Commodore? Commodore, there yeah. you go. Commodore was around that. This was an IBM um, knockoff that was partly HP. I don't even remember what it was, <laughs> but it was at least stable enough. It could hold a paper. You could edit it, uh -huh. and then you could print it out in your dot matrix, and you know you'd have a paper. Was your father in tech? Yeah, he ended up going into tech. He had initially he had gotten his PhD in chemistry, but he had an electrical engineering master's, and so eventually, through from teaching chemistry to writing for a newspaper, socialist newspaper, mm. he found his calling in the tech world because he, as a tech writer, because he understood all the electrical engineering behind things, so, and he could communicate, which was kind of rare for many engineers, so he, he made a, a living with making a manual. Did your father grow up in the 60s or the, or the 50s? Uh, well, he was born in 36, so his... Um, he went. He was at Berkeley in the late fifties. Okay. Went back to Wisconsin for the PhD in the early sixties. Because you mentioned he was a socialist. Yeah. So I wonder how that was for him to to be uh, to identify as a socialist back in those days, where socialism wasn't exactly uh, a, was a close thing to communism almost. Well, yeah. There it was. It was interesting. Just so my grandmother and my grandfather were true socialists. My grandmother uh, actually ran for vice president in 56 and 60 for the Socialist Labor Party. So she was on the ticket traveling across the country, you know, running for vice president. And so the family just kind of grew up with that political background. And she regularly in Wisconsin was actually debating Joseph McCarthy. Oh, wow. And he actually respected her. Uh, he, offered huh. her he offered her a job as a speechwriter. For, for McCarthy? McCarthy. The guy that was going after socialists. Well, he, he was saying that he was going after communists, but here's, here's my point, or I think the, the point should be taken in that, is I still don't know that he believed that as oh. much as it was opportunist for him. Right. So he made some statement to the lines of, when you're ready to leave that chicken shit outfit, referring to the Socialist Labor Party, mm -hmm. come talk to me, I'll give you a job. So he could not imagine, probably, that my grandmother actually believed <laughs> that workers should have a say in their process and have a power as a voice. Mm. That was probably, oh, it's a nice line, Cazzini, but come over here, I'll give you a real job. Were your uh, grandparents immigrants? Um, 
my grandmother's family goes way back. She was even a, in the allowed to be in the Daughters of the Revolution because the family was, I think, 1600s. You know, wow. like the poor Scots who had come over at that time. Because are the OG Americans. She was, yeah. My yeah. grand, my grandfather, yeah. though, he was, he came over um, when he was like fourteen from from Italy. From Italy. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and then my mother's side, they were all eighteen hundred Germans. Uh huh. So in terms of yeah, the family, so it was yeah, the old ones from the Scottish English side. Then there's the Germans that were the. 1800s and then the the Italians from the 1900s yeah and they passed down you know the the socialist ideology to your father absolutely yeah and has he tried to get involved politically my father was very much still involved he was a member of the so I think he still is a member of the Socialist Labor Party uh, and he had written for their newspaper mm-hmm. and he was quite active you know just with the local the um, the National Committee was actually in Palo Alto. That's where the newspaper was being written out of. Hmm. The Weekly People. Okay. And so that's where, yeah, the the press was. So that's where he, when we came to California, he was here to write for that. What did your mother do? Uh, nurse. A nurse. Yeah, so she had her master's in um, psychology, but she had gotten her nursing degree. So she actually initially was like the head nurse or admin at psychiatric hospitals and then when we came out here she you know didn't have her wisconsin reputation so she went back to the uh you know running the line so to speak of you know plugging in the ivs and all that but mm. what part of wisconsin is your family from milwaukee area milwaukee oh the beer oh yeah that's what it's known for the beer right yeah and that's what the uh several of the german um immigrants did was they started breweries right so right. there was some you know ancient brewery history in there with the various families and at what age did you move here with your family? Uh, I guess we came out here in 1977. Huh. Was yeah. there was there a culture shock or was it more the same? I I guess you know just in terms of coming in and being a new kid on the block, you know, with the Wisconsin accent and you know, <laughs> you don't exactly fit in. But yeah, uh, being a socialist and an atheist in Wisconsin. You don't fit in anyway. Oh, so, so you, know, <laughs> you guys are the minority. I was very used to not fitting in. Yeah. <laughs> oh man! And uh, so you you arrived here at, at at what age again? I'm sorry. Well, it was for sixth grade. For sixth grade, so you're yeah. young. Oh, so I was yeah, ten, eleven years old. Yeah. All right. And were you already uh, getting introduced to poetry at that time? Yeah. As a matter of fact, the the family had just very you know uh, intellectual sort of background, so. We were read all all sorts of literature. You know, we were being read Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Grandma would read us from this. Co- I got the book now. It's a collection of humorous poems, and so Grandma would just read those things to us. So the kids, we just sit around, and so I was hearing poetry, and poetry had a voice. It had comedy. It had you know pathos. It had passion. Uh, so it was just kind of built into my head that poetry expressed all those things so that was part of yeah my some of my earliest memories on poetry was yeah listening to grandma reading uh silly limericks actually how big how many siblings do you have uh i got an older brother and an older sister right in the middle so i'm well no they're i'm I'm the baby oh you're the baby sorry yeah Yeah, i I misheard that completely yeah (laughs) the baby do they also get involved in poetry or creative writing um no, my my brother went very much more into the science, and he ended up going up to Alaska because he was really into fishing. 
Uh, so he was, you know, tying f- flies and making fishing poles and doing all that. And mm. my sister went into art. And she folk, I guess she got her degree in ceramics. And she's been teaching uh, middle school art. But she literally does all art. So she is, yeah, very, you know, talented mm. there. My brother is a, a great painter, too. My grandmother's the painter that kind of inspired people to, to paint. Have you dabbed in painting? No. It's one of those things... Um, it. I had the choice in high school, was I going to do shop or was I going to do the art? Mm-hmm. And so once I got into the shop, it just, I was loving, you know, to you run a mill or a lathe, that was just the coolest thing, you know, to, to form whatever you wanted, you know, so I was making, you know, bikes for, you know, uh, parts for my BMX bike, I was building crab traps, I was, my brother and I designed and I built a fly fishing reel. Mm. So just to, to be able to, you know, forge something out of metal was, you know, so cool at that time. But I would, I loved to sketch. I still like to charcoal draw. I still, you know, I would love to be at some point painting. It's just one of those, of all the amazing things to do in life, but unfortunately has not <laughs> it's happened. It's harder than it looks, man. I tried painting. Yeah. It's like, no, I can't do it. Like, yeah. I just, I, I lose whatever it is I'm trying to visualize uh-huh. in the middle of it. So it's, it's, but I don't know, some people pick it up easy. Some people do, some people don't. Yeah. But so, what were your aspirations coming out of uh, high school? You know. Oh, I I had no idea what I was going to do after high school. The, just you know, the people who decide I'm going to do this and they're going to go get it. This blows me away. How does someone that scared me? Like, what would my? Uh, I'd be like, I'm still cem- I'm still at that stage. I was cementing my future. I, I can't believe that people have that that ability. So no, I. I knew that I wanted to do something different, and my safe thought, I thought, oh, maybe I'll get an English degree and maybe teach English. Mm. That was kind of roughly like my safe thought. Going into t- teaching. Yeah. And then I'd do something like I'd coach football on the side or something. I could visualize somehow that bridged something artistic and something still, you know, basic with, you know, the sports that I'd really been enjoying, but had no clue. But... I knew I wanted to do something more with arts and performance and what have you. So uh, I went to De Anza initially and started getting involved in theater. And so that was kind of the road that got me down the path. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, at the time, Foothill didn't have their uh, theater department? No, no, they, they still had it. What they were trying to do at the time was make Foothill Theater De Anza dance. Yeah. They had this just this concept that things should be divided up in this way. What's even worse was because I went to De Anza as well for film. Yes. And I figured why not have the theater department here where we could you know co- uh, collaborate. But it's same. It's like they keep theater in Foothill and at De Anza now it's it's film. They have a couple of smaller acting classes, but it's, yeah. it was nothing compared to the program they currently have at Foothill. Yeah. So the the let's say the lead um, teacher in the uh, theater dance department literally got a de- his he created a PhD called theater dance, and so he never saw that there had to be a division. So he led we I was in an actors ensemble group with him, and yeah, and the the the, the battle at the time actually with Deanza was film and TV, because so there was like the film department and the TV department because they had the mm-hmm. TV station. Right. So there was even battles within there. You know, yeah. What's the difference between film and TV and 
And so at least I did have the chance to be in some student films because that's exactly what it was. You know, right. we'd meet the, the film people and then it's like, hey, you need some bodies to do this scene and do uh-huh. that. And so... How was that experience working with, uh, with student filmmakers? Oh, that was just a blast because it was, it was usually something very short. Mm-hmm. So you weren't going to have, you know, an eight-hour day trying to can, you know, a whole 20 minutes. You had, you know, two hours to can a minute and a half, right? So it was never like a really long, grueling day. So it was, it was What era fun. was this? Um, well, I got to De Anza in 84. It's so in the 80s. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, so I did, I did my five years there. Well, was there a lot of uh, horror uh, student films happening? No. Because was... that's kind of where the horror genre kind of really got into fruition was through the 80s. No, it, it was not an influence at all. Matter of fact, uh, the student films I were involved with were more like stop motion, silly things. And then uh, because I was doing stand up, and stand up was very popular at the time. You were doing stand up comedy? Yeah, yeah, I did stand up. Holy uh, so shit, I dude. Was... I, well, you get so many things <laughs> under your belt. So you got involved in stand up while you're, you were going through Deanza? Yes. Cool. What were the places to even perform stand up at those times? Well, locally, there was basically nothing initially. So I had to go to San Francisco. So I went to uh, uh, Rose and Thistle, was a, or Crown and Thistle. I'm trying to even remember the name of the place. And uh, another small little dive bar, you know, off, like off in the Sunset District, which I don't even remember the name of it. And I only went up there a few times. And then, so I managed to actually perform for my workplace. I performed at a, at a stand-up comedy competition <laughs> in De Anza. Uh-huh. Uh, so I really only did stand-up like 10 times. What attracted you to stand-up? Uh, the absolute fear of doing it. Oh, so it was a it, thrill ride for you. It was Well, it was kind of to go up there and to say I'm going to make this audience laugh. That was just such a challenge. Mm. And I was scared to death of that. You're all alone. There's, well, no, there's no supporting cast. Right. There's not a, a, anything behind you. You have to somehow just get... That scared me. To, and that's where I, I couldn't not do it. Mm. And so I took it more as a path uh, on the writing journey. You know, I'd heard that, you know, from people like Woody Allen, what have you, they had... It was like just part of their process. And mm. so for me, it's like I had to do it. Or, or die. It was like, you, you just have to, you have to do stand-up at some point. Have to do it or die. <laughs> exactly. I like that. Yeah. Well, this is back in the like early 80s, late 70s, so the, the concept of even being a, a stand-up comedian was a bit of rock and roll to it. You know, there were, there were superstars back then. Who were your influences at well, the time? Well, just in terms of humor, I was still coming out of sketch comedy. So it was Monty Python and Saturday Night Live and, and stuff like that that had me thinking, well, what do you present on stage that's funny? Um, I mean, of course, you know, you had everyone, Richard Pryor and George Carlin were just, you know, just so in in the culture that, you know, you could not help but have them as an influence. But anyone who came up strong, because that was the early days of, let's say, stand-up comedy competitions. Mm-hmm. And so tons of people in there. So Bobcat Goldthwait was a, still is, I still love him. Yeah. Um, anyone who was, came up popular at that time had some kind of influence. And so I really took it more as, in my head, like a writer, like what jokes would I write for them? That was kind of more my approach on it. Yeah. And so we actually had a, 
in the acting troupe, we chose to basically focus on short one-act plays that were humorous. And we took things from Rang Lardner to Mel Brooks to from Carol Burnett shows. And we did a whole humor night. We took that to some bars and we were just having people rolling. And I talked to people in the, in the crew and I said, why don't we keep doing this on our own? How many of you guys were at it? Uh, that cast at that time had to be 10 to 15 people. Wow. How do you even approach that to a bar owner? You're like, yeah, I'm bringing about 10 to 15 people. We're going to do some sketches. Well, I didn't. That was the thing about the director who was at the ends at the time. He's uh-huh. the one who So we were at JJ's. We were at just a, a local gay bar. We were, you know, just as like finding a performance space. So we did it on De Anza campus. We did it uh, in. And of course, at the time, because they weren't always supportive, we literally sometimes had to take you know, all these tables, strap them together to build a stage in one of the rooms on campus. Uh-huh. And then that's where we would perform for two nights, you know, Friday, Saturday night on campus. And so it was a rolling tour. And I, I had just found that such, that was, that was some of the most fun I've ever had. And when I mentioned to the other members, hey, why don't we continue doing this on our own? They all looked at me like I was crazy. Why? I guess they saw it like a class assignment as opposed to, do you want to keep making people laugh and start writing our own stuff? Right. They just looked at me like that was, why would anyone do that? <laughs> and so that was my final straw where it's like, I have to go do the comedy. It's like, uh, Bill, we, 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 we do all this in school. Once we're out of school, we become adults. I don't, I don't shit, know right? what it was. I, or it was just... It, yeah, I guess I, I had heard... Of, I didn't get the memo, obviously. <laughs> I had heard of Second City and these other things that weren't... They didn't start. You know, like even all the people who, were, I guess, were pulled into Saturday Night Live, they were all Second City people. Mm-hmm. They were just, you know, performing anywhere they could at first. Mm-hmm. So I didn't quite see how they didn't see that as an opportunity to do something. So that's, that's when I finally did stand-up. It was like, okay, I'll continue trying to make people laugh on stage and and part of why I didn't continue with it was it was kind of lonely even you know once I had my routines down I was I felt comfortable with it it was it wasn't as fun yeah yeah it's sometimes I get there myself it's like all right it's like I'm all, all by myself all my uh-huh. friends are another mics uh-huh. I think that's a great thing about music with music especially other musicians like that travel with you that hang out with you that respond to you and your ideas I could kind of see like uh, why there's a lot of fun in that. That's, oh, so it has a world of difference. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but man, that's awesome. I didn't know that. So you graduated from De Anza, I assume. Well, I you transferred out. I, I transferred out. Where, I mean, where to? I, to San Jose State. So I got my degree in English out of San Jose State. So where? that was what I finally realized. Like after three years, I mean, if if there is a way to have a degree, I have a four-year degree in theater. Because I mm-hmm. everything from directing to lighting to building sets to musicals to dance to theater did it all there completely. What were some productions you worked on? Uh, let's see. What was Babes in Arms? Is was just a fun one in terms of my bad singing. Uh, so it's a big musical, um, right. famous for Mickey Rooney and uh, uh, being the lead in that. Who wrote that one? Um, Do you recall? No, I don't off the top of my head right now. Um, But I was the chorus person that the director would, the singing director would pull out and try, ah, ah, ah. I'd sit there and play 10 minutes trying to get the note. 
Mm-hmm. So I'm staged in the back for the big singing scenes. <laughs> and there's the big, so babes in arms too, arms. And I can belt. Uh-huh. Okay. And so I'm belting out apparently a really bad note. So on stage, someone turns around and goes, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Well, pra- well, so rehearsing? No, no, on stage, uh, like, on, Flint, on Flint Center stage. While performing. While for performing, show. someone turned around and told me to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> so singing was was the least developed of my talents, right. if you will. <laughs> I'm there with you, man. I'm, I'm right there with you. I hear you. So you transfer to San Jose State. Do you continue being part of this uh, performance kind of thing at San Jose yeah, State? Yeah, so, well... When I got to San Jose State, I was clear that I was getting the English degree. Um, I would rather be Shakespeare than play Hamlet. Mm. That just That's my short way of kind of summing up what I felt about that. I didn't want to chase a part. That just sounded so disgusting to me. Yeah, I didn't want to run around doing auditions. Um, Constantly selling yourself. Yeah, and I mean, but I love theater. I love performing. I love the stage part of that uh no doubt in that absolutely love it uh but the thought of doing that just sounded gross but being able to write and say what i wanted and i just love that that's where it's like okay there's at least uh it's more soul to me i had to do that so that's why i switched just to getting the, the writing degree that was ended up being the focus so when i went to san jose state um I got dragged into some performances at De Anza because people knew me. Mm. So there wasn't an audition. You were like a local local uh, famous actor, huh? Someone, yeah, the people there knew me. They'd give me a call. And then, you know, I did some small films at San Jose State. Same kind of thing where, you know, some film major. How was the film department at San Jose State at the time? Uh, I knew someone who was working on his master's. And I think he was pleased, but I I was never in the department itself, mm-hmm. so I, I don't know. Because I went to San Jose State as well. Like, okay. dude, it's, fun. it's it's funny how like you're talking with Deanza. I went to Deanza for film, uh-huh. and I went to San Jose State for film as well. Okay. And I still feel like we're we're kind of small, like right now currently. I was maybe was it bigger back then? Or was it even smaller? Well, well, that's that's the thing about it. yeah. I just I literally I was in the English department, uh-huh. and so the fact that I'd run into a film person and start chatting oh you did acting oh boom all of a sudden you're kind of in a part was that Hugh Gillis Hall no that's where the film is at. I mean what what was D- Dudley Moorhead was that the English writing yeah department? but 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 they, but it swapped around depending on the classes because at the time they were rebuilding some of those buildings mm. so most of them I think were I think it was Dudley Moore Dudley Moorhead I think yeah. that yeah, I think that's where most of the classes were but the um, they were rebuilding that one uh where I guess where all the professors are now, that's just off of, just away from the tower building. Oh yes, yes, yes. So that was being rebuilt at that time. So that's where yeah things were shifted around. So I think the English classes sometimes I even had like in the science hall. Do you get involved with the theater department at San Jose State? No, I never did. I never. Huh? Why not? Uh, I wasn't even thinking on that point. I was starting to write the poetry, and I was getting into the words and that. And so the thought of going into a, another theater department, and it just didn't didn't call to me. Fascinating. Yeah. And so you felt like poetry really became a thing for you through your San Jose State years. 
Yeah, you know, met a bunch of people who really loved poetry, who loved um, what you can express with it. And so all of a sudden that just kind of became the focus at the time. So, you know, it was still writing short stories, a buddy of mine and I, you know, we did write up a screenplay. So there's other projects I've been involved in, but that was the, the poetry just became, yeah, this is what I'm going to be writing as mm -hmm. a focus. Might have asked, can I get the plot of your screenplay? It was it was a really bad screenplay. It was um, it, it was it Don't was worry. A, all, no, of, all of my screenplays are bad. Don't it's, worry it's, it's it isn't the whole naked gun sort of type feeling. So it was it's like a parody a satire. A, yeah. So it was a a proctologist got a vision that the president had been infected with um, an anal tumor, and so he had to get to um, Washington and be miniaturized to. <laughs> burn the anal tumor out of George Bush. Of course, and it was Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein was the one who had planted it. Oh. So there's a whole miniaturization scene where he had to fight Saddam Hussein and George Bush's anus. And uh -huh. yeah, it was that kind of. Were you inspired by Honey We Shrink the Kids or something? No, no. It was it was literally just making the basic proctology joke. Yeah. Um, and then George Bush was president, battling Saddam Hussein. Yeah. And so it makes sense that Saddam Hussein would, you know, infect him with colon cancer. And so that just, it just went from there. So it was a complete road trip of these two proctologists traveling across the country. And it was just a crazy, you know, road trip battle film. Um, yeah, just pure silliness. Yeah. So you guys finished the script. What happened to it? Uh, you guys tried to get it, you know, sell it in the market? No, we, we didn't try. We... Or at least produce it. I had gotten to the point where I had literally typed it up. I had 80 minutes that was actually fairly, or 80 pages, you know, fairly pages, clean yeah. at that point. And just one thing led to another. You know, it's how many films would come out. You know, for instance, we had the road oh, trip coming. This is before digital. That's right. So the number of movies that came out that took one element or another away, like as we went across the country. There would be a big road scene where we piss off bikers or we piss off so and so. So we're being chased by a bigger, bigger train of people. Mm -hmm. Well, each of those elements was taken from in some movie or another. So we just kind of like ah, uh, kind of just put it to the side. Like oh, that's been done. So we kind of let it uh, let it settle with that. You know. Okay. Yeah. All right. So you got any po were you performing poetry while you were attending Sanzi State? No, no. I I was I. It started writing just on my own, going back to the sixth grade, I started writing poetry on my own. And then in, actually, ironically enough, in a Shakespeare class, the teacher just as assignment said, go see live poetry somewhere. Where'd you go? The Works. So I don't know if you know the Works Gallery. Well, yeah, it's currently uh, by the McHenry building. Yeah. Yeah, so right there on Market Street. And at the time, Works was... I think it was actually in a temporary building on First Street. And Greg Hall and Greg Keith were reading. It was called The Two Gregs. And it turned out my stepmother had knew Greg Keith. So ended up my father, my stepmom, and myself went and saw The Two Gregs read. And Greg Keith and Greg Hall ended up being great friends. And that was the first reading I went to in uh, San Jose and that was 1989 I guess what about it give you an impression uh, considering your background already working in theater working in productions working on a variety of things what is it about going to that poetry reading that really 
really give you an impression of like, wow, this is really something I can do. Well, I wasn't even necessarily thinking um, about something I can do at that moment. What just struck me was both of them had very unique voices. They were both in their 40s, so at the time when you're in 20, you know how, how old a 40-year-old looks. But they were just laying out life in their words, in their tones, in their styles so beautifully. And so there I was listening to this poetry and on these very different voiced characters and just loving it. And they read beautifully, the images were great, the ideas were powerful. Uh, they expressed science, they expressed love, they expressed politics. And so there, once again, like there was no limitation to what you would do with poetry. And of course, then they both had some stuff that was really funny. So once again, it's like the whole scope of life was being expressed. And that was, once again, that, you know, just kind of solidified why poetry to me was so great. And did you start performing after seeing that? Uh, well, around that time, then I ended up entering into a poetry workshop course. And there were people I met at that time then who they wanted to go out and go to readings. And there was almost no reading in San Jose, especially at open mic. So we were always traveling up to the city together or going to Berkeley to find an open mic. Was like deja vu for you? Like your stand-up days? So you go, here we go again. I have to go all the way to the city. Well, it, at the time, uh, it was a joy to go to the city. It wasn't like it was a car ride. It was like an adventure. You're going to go to San Francisco. You know, it, it, you know, nowadays it's like whatever. You know, it's a drive somewhere. <laughs> uh, but at the time, that was, it was one of the magical places in the world. To go to San Francisco, one of the big cities of the world, big mm -hmm. names, to go to find some weird event. Mm -hmm. Oh, it was so magical. So it was, a, it was a delight to go do that, to go find a new place. Same thing with Berkeley. You know, it's, once again, it's, that was so exciting. So we loved it. You know, driving across, you know, the Bay Bridge from, you know, one event to another. It was, yeah, yeah it, was, it was a blast to do that. Uh, but you also learned the limitation of certain readings. Some, some of them were these catty, self-centered, arrogant um, cliques mm -hmm. that didn't seem to even like poetry. They just seemed to kind of like themselves. Just to be in the scene. Yeah, and... Or and it was like, yeah, because they're in San Francisco, they were great. Mm. Well, they weren't, a lot of them. And so that's what kind of started getting me into, wow, if I ran a reading, I would do it differently. And so then all of a sudden, you know, hanging out in San Jose, well, there's no readings here. And I started meeting people who, right in that time, late 80s, early 90s, there was a big chunk of people who said, well, instead of going to San Francisco why don't we do something locally? And so that was one of those first times where San Jose was trying to pull artists in and keep them into our neighborhoods. And so that's when I met, you know, Chris Esparza, Chris Elliman, you know, at the Ajax mm. and started talking to them and said, well, why don't I start a reading here? What kind of place was the Ajax at the time? Uh, what was so cool about it was it really did feel like the kids created it. So Chris Elliman, Chris Esparza, I don't know if you know them. You know, Chris was doing, uh, Elliman was more like the design kind of guy. Esparza was more of the promotions guy. Mm -hmm. And so the Ajax 
was painted with like uh, Greek uh, frescoes and gods were painted on the ceiling and you know so it was kind of this mythological ornate painted place because it was in the second floor of a Greek restaurant right no 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 it's um it was the Elu- it's, it's the stritch yeah but before it was the stritch same owner but it was the loop the whatever Eulipia the Eulipia yeah yes Eulipia was the name of um oh I'm forgetting his name uh, Rohan's uh, saxophone okay I believe uh, and it was a restaurant at the time. Yeah, right? so so downstairs was, was a, a Greek restaurant. I thought no, it was, no, no, no. It was, it was like just Cal- regular California cuisine. Okay, so fairly high end, but not totally out there. So very good food, and so the upstairs had been used for catering and such, mm. and just a special event. So on the whole, it was not being used. So the Chris's had made some proposal, like, "Hey, we'll turn this into something of a nightclub," and sure enough, the, the place took off. Did that appeal to the owners at the time? Yeah, I think the initial agreement, everyone was very happy um, because Ajax was just raking it in. This is the heart of Sofa District, right? Can you describe Sofa District at that time? Um, Actually, it was fairly similar to now. So you you, you had, uh, on the one corner, you had Marsugi's. It was pulling in live music. Um, The theater across the street, I'm trying to think what it is now. The California Theater? No, 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 not the California. So, um... Uh, if you're at you at the stretch, yeah, and you walk um, down the street, you cross um, the Ritz. Is it the Ritz now? Is that what it yeah, is? Yeah, yeah. It's that, corner of San Salvador. At yeah, first. yeah, yeah. So, so that was different. It's gone through so many different names. I forget what place it was called, but that had been the porn theater, and it got oh tur- the porn theater. Yeah, that's that's now the uh, workout place. No, 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 no. That that place was no. That place was just doing more like a small, I think, uh, Mexican films. So I think it was oh. largely Mexican films. There it was across the street was the porn theater, which oh, I guess wow. you're calling the Ritz. So okay. yeah, the, so the first time I saw porn was there. You know, when we snuck in in high school, you know. <laughs> How was that experience? <laughs> going, seeing porn for the first, like for me that's uh, being the generation that I am, where uh-huh. the first time we see porn is through the screens of a computer. Okay. How was it going seeing on the big screen with with other people, other strangers with you in the same room? Oh, it was it was freaky and gross. We we had snuck into the side door, and uh, you didn't even pay for it. No, we didn't even pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> And you know that hasn't changed. And so we're we're exactly it's always stealing the porn. So no joke, we're walking through. The floors were sticky. Oh yeah. Um, you sat down in the chairs, not sure what was going on. It was all of us just kind of looked at each other like this is not good. <laughs> we all left. So we literally were in there, not couldn't just, we enjoy it just long enough to look up at the screen and see whatever body part and weird angle and going. And then, yeah, the, the three other people you could see in there were, like, men in overcoats. Right. So, it was just like, it's time to go. Yeah, so, that was not a... Right. Uh, so, the Sofa District was busy at the time, just like it is now, where there's music happening, there's a bunch of art happening, and then you get this opportunity to put together your own open mic room at yeah. the Ajax. Yeah. How, how did that uh, turn out? Like, how was the first steps getting that thing together? Well, um, at the time... I literally, I wrote to those guys, I gave them a business proposal. I said, hey, you do this, we're going to have this many, much, you'll have this much bigger of a crowd on Sunday nights. Did you really feel like you could pull in a, a certain crowd to go see poetry in San Jose? Actually did at, feel, at that con- time? yeah, actually felt confident about it. And since open mic, even though we called it open mic poetry, 
um, they had a grand piano sitting on the stage. I mean, a baby one, but mm-hmm. you know, so people went up and played music. So just like we're talking uh, Lisa, right? Yeah, Lisa Dewey. Uh, people went up there with their guitars. So every now and then someone uh, would pull classical guitar music and they just wanted a place to play. They signed up on the sheet, they played. So we weren't saying you couldn't do anything, even though it was open mic poetry. And so, yeah, we had the piano. We had people from San Jose State who would practice their monologues up on stage. Hmm. So we'd get, you know, a Lady Macbeth or something, you know, uh, performed. And so I felt that in terms of the number of people I met and knew who wanted to do poetry, who were kind of like, why are we always going to San Francisco? Why are we what have you um i thought yeah i thought that there'd be an audience for it and sure enough um after the first month which was just kind of you know flighty because you know what's going on here but we we put it in the calendars you know you had to get into a calendar at the time at the, you know, the mercury news or in the poetry flash or into the metro and that's where people used to actually look at those things that was where you went there wasn't the internet to look at you had to look at these papers and sure enough we ended up having the you know, we'd have 30 to 40 people signed up on the open mic list. Um, I started getting featured. The uh, Chris's were paying us, you know, I could pay 40 bucks to the featured reader, which at the time, no other place was doing. Yeah. Half the time they didn't pay, let alone pay 40 bucks. That was like big money. Mm-hmm. And uh, we just pulled in regularly. It'd be 80 people would be in that room to watch this, uh, watch this event. At the time, did you get any idea or feeling how much of a place of influence this place was going to be because I, I, I would talk to a lot of people who were involved in the scene mm-hmm. back in those days and one one of the main things stages they point to is the Ajax yeah. did you have did, did you kind of see that happening we're like man this thing really has potential it was it was you you totally felt it in that you know because they put in real sound system so when musicians went in there they could be heard well uh people just they just were attracted to it um because it was a place where you could feel people wanted to put their art out and the owners and the people there respected it and supported it and enjoyed it so it it was definitely when you were there you felt like oh something's happening just walking into the place you felt like something was happening and that yeah you just don't feel that in most places so for anyone to say that um they didn't feel it i'd be more surprised than to say that they did feel it and one of the poets uh maud mian uh who read there um she was actually in the beat scene in the 50s in new york and when she was at ajax she goes oh this is what it was like wow because there's just the vibrancy there. There are people, you know, they're playing jazz music and they had jazz musicians going up on stage. And they had that little connection. There was there was the hip hop and the rap and the jazz and the acid jazz and all these kinds of different blends and influences were, where else were those people going? And now you had kind of a, a cool stage to go up on and to be heard cleanly and get to present it. And you had an eclectic crowd that um, any bar crowd went out to you know play and flirt, but they also were listening. You know, to be able to go somewhere and be listened to, it was yeah, it was really cool. Is there a particular poet that you had feature that uh, you consider like a big achievement? 
I, I guess no. The, the the first person that I got that was willing to listen to me who was published was Roberto Tinoco Duran. Oh wow! Was, so, was he around at the time? Yeah, yeah. So he is is uh, so he was getting his second um, book published from the Arizona Press um, right about that time. So Reality Ribs was coming out, and so I had just seen him at an open mic. And, you know, wow, this guy's amazing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, chased him down and, you know. Uh, so I think for certain you always have to be chasing him down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, got him to, to read. So he was at least, so for me at least that was important. Like that was the first person who had been published who I didn't know, who heard that I was putting on a reading and he kind of looked at me and go, yeah, and, and we pay. And, you know, come on up and, you know crowd is loving poetry and they're listening to people okay and so he was kind of like the first person because I had gone over I had talked spoken to people like Robert Haas after a reading in San Jose State and Mm -hmm. you know I'll shamelessly go up to you know him and go hey we've got a reading going locally and he just kind of nod and like turn away (laughs) right (laughs) I love I love Haas I love his poetry but he, he looked at me like I was crazy to even ask that so that was at least the first time where Um, that happened and then I didn't go and try to pursue the next tier because the number of people who were amazing writers who put out beautiful chapbooks full of beautiful poetry I had such a there's I had such a wealth of talent to draw from for the featured reading spots so I didn't go and try to get that person who I'd have to you know and the Chris has even told me they would they would back me to pay for some big name. Mm. I didn't even bother doing that. It just wasn't worth pursuing as far as I was concerned. Yeah. So how long have you been running Ajax? Uh, we made it about three years. What happened uh, that's, so during the third year? That's when um, whatever deal had existed between you know the Chris's upstairs and um, the Steve Borkenhagen, he's 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 the one who owns, I guess, the building, and his son Max is pretty much the one booking all the music into Stritch now. Mm-hmm. Whatever agreement between the Chris's and Steve existed, um, I think they were wearing on each other. I don't really know the exact. And so when the next negotiation came down, um, what people wanted from each other was more, and mm-hmm. each was asking in the wrong direction I think mm-hmm. so that's just pretty common in business yeah so so that fell apart okay so so that just that place ended and that's right around the time that um, my son was coming along so my uh, son was born in uh, 95 and it was right at the beginning of 95 that the reading ended okay so well, what did you move on to well I did on a couple of short occasions, you know, I ran a poetry reading with Ted Gerke, um, out of the Waves place, but uh, I was working full time and I was taking care of my son full time. How was so that? Those were my two jobs, yeah. really. How was that experience? I see. That's that was one of those things too that I had also learned during my poetry writing days that um, people are actually more important than art. Now, people with art, without art, that's a, that's a sad tragedy. So I'm not saying, but to pursue a poem over a child 
to me just made no sense. So I loved, you know, having the chance to, I worked a, at the time, I worked three 12 hour days. So Monday through Thursday, I was raising my son and wouldn't pass that up for anything. You know, it was beautiful. So I didn't, I was still writing, never stopped writing, but the amount of time I was putting into, let's say, helping the poetry scene or what have you, you know, pretty much diminished. Did you uh, find your writing to change after your son came? Or I heard, there's some people who say that once you have children, like your perspective in your own art changes. Uh, and even the direction of it. I, th I think the direction had started to change a little bit earlier. I mean, the, the fact that I was willing to be a parent. I was looking for a more stable relationship as opposed to just, you know, being young and crazy. I think the perspective had kind of shifted. But I think I always had family was always a big part of my poetry. Mm -hmm. You know, just, you know, having such purposeful grandparents and what have you. There was something about family that was always present. So um, the to have a greater focus towards... Um, let's say, uh, lyrical, meditative poetry became more common in my head as opposed to when I first started, are you going to do something crazy and wild and try to be impressive? You know, um, there was even a Robert Haas poem, I can't think of the title right now, but where he's discussing, you know, that later on in the day they'll be seeing the grandchildren and I said to myself I want that poem I want that poem about you know grandchildren and sunrises and you know it's like uh, so that that influence was already kind of in there I think Wow did you meet your wife at, at a poetry reading is um, there a story to it no well no actually I met her she never became my wife. Oh, I mean your your partner, <laughs> my partner at the Sorry time. For, for assuming the yeah, that, we were partners for a few years there. Um, no, actually, I met her at De Anza. She was a dancer. She was a modern dancer, and uh, is she the one that that yelled at you to shut up? No, no, no. no that would have been funny. No, that was no, no. <laughs> she no, she wasn't a singer either. Oh, okay. No, it was a um, very talented singer. Um, uh, Steve Completo, who was actually the one who yelled at me um, mm. on stage, but the uh, no, I I just met her in passing um, on campus at De Anza, and you know someone you know was good friends with her, and she stopped by, and we started chatting, and we had our kind of first little crush thing at that moment, and just years later, you know, managed nice. to uh, consummate the relationship. But now. You getting involved with poetry and a variety of other great talented things like Ajax. Was your family always supportive of that? Yeah, as a matter of fact, um, on different levels, I think my father was much more wanting to see something constructive like a degree and a and a career. So he, when I was first going into the arts and doing stand up and all that, he was a little bit more, well, where is this going? Mm. But my mother, uh, you know, she was from day one. It's like she was into photography at the time. So I have all these photos of me in these early plays that I was on in De Anza. You know, she's there, you know, taking pictures. As a matter of fact, the director was 
and her would fight over whether or not she's allowed to take photos. And she'd be, well, this is a dress rehearsal, yeah. so it doesn't matter. <laughs> and and at, at the time, you can't really uh, remove the flash, right? Yeah, well, I, he, he, he won that battle. So there was not a flash involved. And so mom was learning how to deal with the film, so there was all this yellow, grainy footage. Yeah. But actually pretty well captured of, of a lot of the shows that... So she did manage to win the, uh, the the motherly battle against the director, which was pretty funny. All right. Now, what's your perspective now of the poetry scene now in San Jose and, and how it's come a long way in a short amount of time? Well, you know, and that's one of those things, too. It's, it's just beautiful right now. I'm with the Poetry Center San Jose, um, so I'm a board member with them. And that's part of how I started getting myself back involved was just... Uh, I'd been chatting with Mike McGee, and he was saying, well, I think I'm going to join the board. You know, why don't you come to some meetings? And so I started attending that, and... What kind of conversations happens at those board meetings, if you mind me asking? Oh, yeah, no, no. Sorry for interrupting. Oh, no, 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 no. Because they're they're public. When I hear there's a board of whatever, especially when something are are creative, it's like there's a board of poetry in the city, whatever. Like, like what, what kind of stuff are you guys even discussing? Are you guys... Are you guys more like trying to get shows together, or can you just give me an idea what happens yeah. in those rooms? No, 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 absolutely. Um, so it is following typical board type patterns. So you know, you start off your meeting and you're going to give a report. I'm the treasurer, so you know, I'll give the treasury report. Here's what's happened with the money. Here's you know, money coming in, money going out. It has to be tracked very closely. Uh, and then you get into the basic agenda, which is well, let's see. Uh, so-and-so, the Sunnyvale Library wants to get a poetry reading for Poetry Month. Does anyone want to volunteer? And so then we'll discuss in the board, like, well, yeah, it'd be great to support something in Sunnyvale, too. So it's not always just San Jose and we can, you know, meet new audiences. So we'll do that kind of discussion and see if someone on the board has the time to volunteer to host that and run that. Uh, then, so we'll have some new things that come in like that that we'll have to discuss. And then it goes into, uh, we have established readings. And how are those readings going? Does someone need some support? Does, you know, do you have what you need for the next couple of months in terms of bookings? And then we'll go into, you know, we're, we have the Poetry Festival coming up in October. It'll be the third in a row. And then we have the discussion like, yeah, you know, same thing, where do we have all the readers booked? Do we have all the, what have, you know, um, is there enough money in the budget? So then we'll have that discussion of, yeah, you know, well, if we're spending this much, are we getting this grant done? Are we? So then we talk about which grants we're going after, how much money we think we will or won't have, so we can project. Well, I think this year we can pay everyone a hundred bucks, where last year we paid seventy-five dollars. So sometimes it gets into the nitty-gritty of just trying to figure out, hey, here's a budget and here's a goal we want to get this event going. How long has this board been running? Well, Poetry Center San Jose actually started, oh, I'm trying to think if it was 1979. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it, it predates Ajax. It predates just any any poetry scene in San Jose. Yeah. And it was, well, I guess it was part of, even at the time, recognizing it. So Nils Peterson, who was the first poet laureate of uh, the Santa Clara Valley, or Santa Clara County, I guess, um, he was one of the founding members of it and he was a professor over at San Jose State. So the so the fact that you know people wanted to have a poetry group and you know try to get local people involved and what have you that idea and that feeling has been 
running for a long time and it's had you know from academic people to you know hobbyists or however you want to describe them or street poets or what have you all these years you know working to kind of build events and so um, the fact that more people have gotten involved with it and it's reaching more and more people has just been a blessing of you know the hard work of recent you know board members who you know, have pushed that forward so it's yeah most most meetings are kind of dull it's like is there a new reading is this one supported yes or no um, so it generally kind of moves along yeah without a whole lot of thrill but yeah so pretty much you guys the you guys are working with the current poetry scene in San Jose making sure that, you know everybody's doing well how it seems like there is a huge scene here in San Jose poetry wise every weekend you can find a poetry reading somewhere oh yeah yeah so yeah so the, the number of events that are happening and the number that Poetry Center San Jose is, invo is involved with um, Poetry Center San Jose is involved with a low percentage of them and it's not that anyone's being excluded it's just you know the board can each only person can only do so many tasks so the number of people who know that Poetry Center exists um, is to some degree just like when I was at San Jose State I didn't think about the Poetry Center San Jose mm -hmm. when I started my reading I didn't think about talking to the Poetry Center Did. It, it didn't dawn on me I, it just so that's one of those things so that I know there are readings going on right now where people don't know that it's a resource that they might be able to work with did you feel like you were stepping in anyone's toes when you did the Ajax without getting involved with the Poetry Center no, didn't even think of it at all. Okay. Because it was one of those things where, you know, um, San Jose State did have like lecture series that, like I said, would bring in people like Robert Haas. You know, it's right. kind of like the bigger names. We were never going to have that. They didn't have an open mic. So when I looked at there wasn't a weekly open mic anywhere, well, there was no one toes, there wasn't toes to step on. Mm -hmm. No one did anything on Sunday nights. There wasn't a, a weekly. So never felt like that. And... And I eventually, with um, San Jose State, did co-produce some events because they recognized, oh, the scene's going on here. So no one ever then said, oh, how dare you upstart, or I never got any feeling like that. So really, it was... Very supportive then. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Now, what are you up to now? Like, what kind of stuff are you working on with the, uh, with the Poetry Center? Are you involved with any other organizations? Um... So I am now also a board member of Stabby Doll Media, which is doing local film. Stabby Doll Media, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Kimmy Martinez and uh, and Chris, oh Chris, I'm blanking on Chris's last name for crying out loud. Anyhow, Kimmy and Chris, they started Stabby Doll Media and just saying, you know, they want to do local films. So uh, I actually did my first audition two years ago um, to try to get a part in one of their movies. And so I, I, got, I did get uh, cast as the cashier. Uh, but basically, I wanted to be behind the scenes doing more, you know, practice with cameras and editing. And so there is that local group that I'm working with, as well as Poetry Center San Jose. Um, I'm working on the documentary on Roberto Tinoco Duran. Mm. So that's that documentary is called The Jaguar Poet, and I'm still in my constant editing stages of that. Oh, did you shoot it? Yeah, yeah, no, we shot it um, 2015 and 2016, and I was hoping I would have it ready for uh, Cinequest last year. Um, didn't get it done. Uh, 
had the rough outline of a kind of place together. And it really, it was only, I'd say, in the last four or five months where I felt like, oh, I'm building a film that I like and I want. Mm -hmm. You know, where last year as I was just struggling, well, how do I put this thing together? Because documentaries are tough, man. Yeah, and I didn't know how tough, and I didn't, you know, I didn't know enough whether it was technically, you know, to do whichever editing I wanted to do, uh, to make a scene look like I wanted it to look. And so to finally start building scenes, to have now 20 minutes, well, 30 or 40 minutes of it looking like I want it to look, of it sounding like I want it to sound. So it's finally progressing to the point where I feel like, okay, the, the film I wanted to make or want to make is actually coming out. Mm-hmm. You know, I did not know how much there was to learn. <laughs> Which, All right, Bill, we're getting there. We're getting to the one hour mark. Okay. Uh, a question I want to ask you is just to reflect on everything uh, that we just talked about. And kind of if you see, if you saw yourself as that six-year-old writing your first, you know, poetry, mm-hmm. What's some advice you'd give to yourself? Oh, what advice would I give? Uh, keep learning new techniques. Practice reading new voices. Um, never stop listening. Never stop trying something new. I think it's, you know, th- there's times when I haven't read a new poet. Or a new poem, or those are the actually kind of the sad times. Hmm. You know, it's like if you get into anything kind of habitual, that's that's the bad part. Where you know, if you keep growing and learning and pursuing it, it's a lot more exciting and interesting. So yeah. stay away from the routine. Stay away from routine. Yeah, absolutely. And aim for the spontaneous. Yeah, so yeah. Is that what you're going with? Here? Well, well, not just that, but also. Um, it's, it's, it's even a form of discipline and practice to admit that, you know, you get habits and habits aren't necessarily good. So keep trying something new. And then that is, strangely enough, a form of a habit. But so it is both a discipline as well as a spontaneity, I guess. Yeah. Bill, thank you for coming here. Yeah. Thank you. Um, it was a good talk, right? I think We're so. Good. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, you did come here with some uh, with a bag. I wonder if you want to, you know, end this on a poem. Sure, I could end with a poem. Why not? Uh, I figure you, you brought the the bag. I was like, oh no, there's. I'm pretty sure he probably had prepared stuff. Well, I well, I had no idea what was going to happen, and so I didn't want to come in here and go, what? I don't have that, me, me a poem. That's me every episode. Um, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I sometimes I'm not even sure we're going to make it to the hour. Well, you know what? I'll, I'll read this one um, because it, it kind of just lands on the topic at hand. One of the things that's really good about uh, the poetry scene currently is we have so many people reading in different languages, and they just and sometimes they don't translate it. Hmm. And I've learned to listen to that differently. So this poem is called "Spoken Chord Readings." Yes, some poets have musical voices and bring song along to adorn the conveyance within their words, but I'm referring to the chords in and of language. As more poets more frequently write and share their native tongue, the poem becomes notes, sounds, rhythms, and breath. Listening to Vietnamese, Portuguese, Dutch, Tagalog, 
Mandarin, Punjabi, German, Georgian, Greek, Spanish, Hindi, or Hebrew, my foreign ears translate into music what their poem, culture, and language deliver. The words might be love and joy, anger and pain, wisdom and peace, family or foe, but I trust their creation and receive. Out of appreciation, my translation kept in silence. Bill, thank you. Thank you. Where can people uh, check you out online? Um, I don't have anything online right now. I don't have a book to sell. Hopefully I'll have a, a book coming up soon. But no, right now it's uh, come downtown San Jose. Come to readings. We'll run into each other. All right, Bill. Thank you for coming. Thank you. And there you have it, Bill Kozeny. What a guy. What a human being. What an amazing person that guy is. And how much he was involved with the uh, creative scene here in San Jose uh, back in the golden age. Uh, of course, I'm saying quotation marks. That is before my generation. But I've been told that is the golden age of downtown San Jose. Uh, but damn it, I'm glad to have it he him here and, uh, and get the full story. Because... Everybody would mention Ajax to me, and I never knew um, what it it was. But just the way people talked about it, uh, it seemed to resonate a place of comfort, of hope, and opportunities. And it was really cool to have uh, the guy who, who practically ran it uh, tell me more about it. And so uh, I'm definitely a fan of Bill Kozeny. And I'm looking forward the next time we meet. All right, ladies and gentlemen, until next week, stay tuned and have a great Sunday. Have a great week.